0: Realm Presents Book Burners,
1: Episode 18. 3. The Castalian Spring, near Delphi, apparently. In spite of her own supernatural preservation, Grace had never been particularly sensitive to magical phenomena, much to her relief and Asante's disappointment. However, at the moment of transition from there to here, wherever here was, she had felt a faint tremor in her bones, a resonance, a sympathy. She examined the woman in white, who looked like she could have stepped off the side of a painted amphora, and she knew what bound them together. This is a place out of time. The woman nodded. Yes. Where are we? Asked Sal. I told you, said the woman. This is Delphi. But we were in Delphi. Asante cut off Sal's objection. We were in the Delphi of the world. This is the Delphi of legend. The woman in white nodded. Is this how the Pythia sees the future? Asante asked. By existing in all times at once? The woman held up a hand. You have come with a question, she said, but not, I think, that one. Do you know what information we seek? This time the question came from Manchu. No, but we were told to expect you. By whom, asked Grace. By the Pythia, naturally. In retrospect, Grace supposed she should have seen that answer coming. Liam grumbled to himself as the woman in white led the group back down the path, away from the spring. Naturally, the Pythia said to expect us. Liam had never met an oracle before, but so far the Pythia was exactly as annoying as he had anticipated. He glanced at Sal, his normal go-to for an appreciative audience of mildly witty snark. But she was walking with Manchu. It was like she'd been purposefully avoiding him since the breakup, which was stupid. They had to work together. They could be friends, even if they had given up the benefits. But apparently, Sal didn't see things that way. The suspicion that their friction was not entirely Sal's fault did nothing to help his mood. Liam was so engrossed in his own spiraling grumpiness, he didn't notice when they left the woods until suddenly the whole of the valley was spread before them, and the group could once again see the slopes of Mount Parnassus. It had been a holy site since pre-Hellenic times, consecrated to Apollo and then also to his brother, Dionysus. Temples had been destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed again and rebuilt again, until ultimately passing into ruination by a combination of the rise of Christianity, natural disasters, and the march of time. Until now. The team froze in their tracks. The Temple of Apollo was once again still, all gleaming columns on a pristine marble foundation. Where there had once been a village, there was now a shining city. Where there had once been tourists, there was now not a single living soul. What happened to everyone? Liam asked. The woman in white shrugged. We used to have many supplicants, and all who sought us came in good faith. Now the Pitya must be more selective about whom she lets inside her doors. We're honored to be here," said Asante. Ganatis, auton," said the woman, chiding, and resumed walking. The rest of the team hurried to catch up. Ganotez auton. Although Asanti could read ancient and modern Greek fluently, she had to admit that her grasp of the spoken language was a bit rusty. Still, a little historical context made the meaning of the woman's phrase clear enough. Know thyself. It was the phrase, or perhaps one of three, depending on your source, engraved on the Pythia's temple in ancient times. But what had the woman meant by it? Asante had merely spoken the truth. She was honored to be here. Of course, that wasn't what she had said, was it? But surely her colleagues must appreciate the sheer awe, the simple wonder of being here, in spite of their personal prejudices and misgivings. She glanced back at her companions. Perhaps not. She wondered if she should have come alone, but no, they needed each other, and she would never have allowed it. In any event, it was far too late to worry about that now. As she followed the woman in white, Asante let herself picture all the travelers who had come before them. A traitor from Athens, a mother from Crete, a senator from Rome. All had been part of the same pilgrimage over the millennia, changed in details, but not in spirit. The first step in obtaining a divination from the Pythia was determining that an omen was needed, and making the journey to Delphi. Done. The second step was ritual purification in the Castilian spring. As if reading her mind, the woman in white led the group to a place outside the temple where the spring flowed into a deep pool and directed them to wash. Asante knelt at the edge without hesitation. Is this really necessary? asked Liam. The woman in white replied evenly. Only if your question is important to you. Manchu tried to reassure Liam. Ritual cleaning is an important part of most religious practices, even our own. I've been baptized once already, thanks. Asante ignored them, plunging her hands into the spring and bringing up an armful of cold water to splash over her face and hair. Manchu and Grace followed suit. Sal didn't seem much more thrilled with the procedure than Liam was, but pressed ahead, as Santi suspected, so that it wouldn't look like they were in agreement. What happened between those two, she wondered. The water slid down Santi's back with a slight tingle, like carbonation fizzing against her flesh. When it passed, she felt strangely refreshed, as though the last few weeks of constant stress and travel had washed away. Rising to her feet, Asanti reached up to squeeze her hair and was shocked to realize that it, along with her face and her clothes, was completely dry. Oh, weird. From Sal's reaction, Asanti was not the only one to notice this phenomenon. Once everyone had washed and observed that they were both cleaner and just as dry as they had been before, the woman in white gestured them forward into the temple. In his life, both before and after entering the priesthood, Manchu had had cause to visit sites considered holy by many different peoples, churches of all denominations, mosques, synagogues, Buddhist and Hindu temples, ancient groves, and standing stones. He wouldn't go so far as to say they all felt the same. That was both a gross oversimplification and the kind of platitude that had always annoyed him. But he was willing to allow that when a place was imbued with divine significance by the people within... There was a quality that was common to all. Different in flavor and degree, perhaps, but which spoke to a union of all divinity which had been part of his faith from childhood and had never left him. The Temple of Apollo at Delphi had that quality, but with an added something. Shadows of Doric columns fell slanting across Menchu's steps as he followed behind his team, led in turn by the woman in white. Wouldn't we all feel stupid? If it turns out we haven't reached the Pythia after all. For all that this mission had been Manchu's own suggestion, it would have been a lie to say that he was completely at peace with asking the Oracle for help. Liam's words pricked at him. Is this the only way, or is it merely the only way we can see? If we had persevered in our pursuit of Mr. Norse, would God have opened up another path? Or is this the doorway he has provided? Manchu was forcibly and uncomfortably reminded of a joke an American colleague had told him, where the punchline was God telling a drowned man who had turned down repeated rescues during a flood because he was so sure he would be saved by divine intervention. Didn't we send two boats and a helicopter? Manchu hoped that whatever they learned was worth it. And then they were descending a short flight of stairs into the presence of the oracle. Sal wasn't sure what she had been expecting the Pythia to look like. Ethereal, ancient, infused with the divine. She definitely hadn't been expecting to see a woman her own age, sitting in a small room on a stone bench beside a pool of water, flipping through a glossy magazine. Given Asante's expression, her extensive research hadn't covered that little detail either. The woman in white bowed, murmuring, the pilgrims you are expecting, and then stepped forward to take the magazine. The Pythia handed it over with only a trace of reluctance. Those formalities complete, the woman in white turned to the team. This is the Pythia. The Pythia apparently didn't get a name, which hadn't seemed strange to Sal until she had seen her flipping through a copy of Vogue. People who read Vogue should have names, she thought. As the woman in white withdrew, Sal glanced at the magazine and blinked. The text had been completely whited out, leaving only the pictures. The Pythia answered her unspoken question. The role of the Pythia is to foretell the future and divine the past. Being too bogged down in the present is deemed distracting. Deemed by whom? By Apollo, of course. Stop doing that, said Sal aloud this time. The other members of the team turned to stare. Grace had already moved her weight forward to the balls of her feet, ready to act if this woman turned out to be not a seer, but a threat. She's answering questions that I'm thinking, not asking, said Sal, feeling a little silly. Sal, said Asante, she hasn't said a word. You didn't hear that, about how Apollo doesn't want her to read the articles in Vogue? Grace blinked. People read the articles in Vogue? Not the point, said Sal. The Pythia looked apologetic. You can see why avoiding distractions is important. My apologies. Sal thought that maybe inadvertent mind-reading and forgetting to talk so that everyone in the room could hear you, was an argument for having a few more distractions in your life. But what did she know about being a prophetic priestess of Apollo? What she said was, it's okay, then added, but please stop reading my mind. The Pythia shrugged. I wouldn't if your thoughts weren't so loud. Is that why you're here? She asked. No, said Asante. We come seeking information. What kind of information? We need to know about the Codex Umbra. The Pythia considered this. And what will you sacrifice for that knowledge? She asked. Sal's stomach went cold. A sacrifice. She'd been so distracted after she'd nearly slept through their flight, she had completely forgotten she needed one. What had the others brought? The Pythia must accept small offerings. No one else seems to have anything huge with them, unless Manchu has been hiding a baby goat under his jacket this whole time. Sal tried to be subtle as she slipped her hands into her pockets. It was probably futile to try to fool a demonstrated mind reader, but maybe she could manage to avoid letting the rest of her team know what a flake she was. And then, beside her keys and a handful of loose euros, her fingers closed around a folded square of paper. A receipt? An old grocery list? Sal squeezed the packet. It gave slightly, as if it was folded around something. What the hell? One by one, the others brought out their offerings. Grace's copy of Moment in Peking, the first novel she had read in English. Menchu's Bible, given to him by a parishioner before he left Guatemala. Asante had brought letters from her dead mentor. Liam, breaking the written material trend, produced a fighter's knife, which he placed on the table before the Pythia without offering any explanation, at least not aloud. Then it was Sal's turn. She took a deep breath, drew out the folded paper, and hoped like hell she wasn't about to offer the oracle a piece of old gum. Slowly, she opened the packet, revealing a tidy bundle of mousy brown hair. Sal's mind raced. Hair? Where did I get? And then she knew. With absolute certainty, she knew. Sal swallowed. It was her brother's hair. That's what I was doing in the archives. But how? The Pythia's voice in her head cut off Sal's mental spiral. An interesting choice. We accept your sacrifice. Then she stepped forward, took the paper and lock of hair from Sal's hand, and placed them next to the other sacrifices, before seating herself behind them on a small three-legged stool. Your sacrifices are all fitting. She dipped a hand into the pool at her feet, brought a mouthful of water to her lips, and drank. For a moment, nothing happened and then the Pythia spoke again, but her voice had changed, though maybe it was only that Sal was hearing it differently. The oracle's words filled every corner of the room, and yet she spoke so softly, Sal found herself straining to hear. The Codex Umbra, a prison of demons, the worst placed together to be more easily guarded by the followers of the cross, until the Codex became too dangerous to be safely held. Even the jailers could not be trusted to the temptations of the prisoners. This book was created by the church, asked Manchu. Assembled, not created. A compilation, pieced from fabrics ready-made, not woven as virgin cloth. Dear God, whispered Asante. Cao caught her breath as she began to understand. The Black Archive's books were dangerous. The Pythia's words implied that someone had decided to take the most dangerous sections of the most dangerous books and put them all together in one place, a supermax for demons. Sal shuddered. Dear God was right. Where is it? Asked Liam. The wounded knights knew it must be hidden. So they found a place where no, the Pythia's voice ceased abruptly. Her face grew red, then dusky purple. Was that normal? The woman in white screamed and rushed forward. No, definitely not. She can't breathe, said Liam. For once, Sal was relieved that someone was cynical enough about this whole excursion to keep their wits about them. Liam rushed to the Pythia side, working with the woman in white to ease the oracle to the ground. He tipped her head back, checking her airway. Something about the familiar emergency procedures caused Sal's training to kick in, and she unfroze moving to join them. The Pythia was still conscious, and Sal grabbed her hand. Can you hear me? Blink if you can. The Pythia blinked. We're gonna help you out, okay? From up close, it wasn't hard to tell what the problem was. The golden necklace that the Pythia wore around her neck had sprouted thorns that had dug their way into her flesh. Are those going through to her airway? Sal asked Liam. He shook his head. More likely, it's the delivery system for some kind of toxin, and her throat is closing down as a reaction. Either way, her throat's almost completely blocked. Don't suppose anyone here carries an EpiPen? Sal asked. The woman in white clutched the Pythia's other hand. Menchu and Asanti shook their heads. Sal turned back to Liam. Should we try to get it off? I don't see how it could make things worse. Famous last words, Sal muttered. But Liam was already lifting the Pythia's head gently so as not to bend her already compromised trachea. I can see the clasp. Sal reached forward, but just as her fingers touched the metal of the fastener, Grace's hand slid in under hers, grasped the clasp, and wrenched it open. As it sprang free, the necklace flew through the air, landing with a soft clink against the hard floor. The instant the necklace was gone, the Pythia convulsed in Liam's arms, her eyes rolling back and bloody foam bubbling up through her lips. She kept writhing as Liam set her down. Minchu slid his folded jacket under her head to protect her skull from banging against the stones, and Sal turned the Pythia's head so that she wouldn't choke as she began to vomit. First bile, then blood. Sal watched the struggling woman's pulse pound in her neck, saw her diaphragm strain to pull air past her blocked throat. She had already coughed up so much blood that the additional stream when Liam cut a hole for a field tracheotomy barely made a difference. But mostly, Sal watched her heartbeat. Proof that she was still fighting to live with everything she had. She kept fighting through it all. In the end, it wasn't enough.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration. Others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that if exposed would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seehorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut.
1: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Four. Chamber of the Oracle, a short time later. The woman in white was so obviously upset, Asante drew her into her arms like she was a child, absorbing her grief at the loss of the Pythia against her shoulder. Eventually, the woman in white pulled herself together, extracted herself from Asante's arms, and turned to face the truth of her oracle lying dead upon the stones. Asante rose to join her. I am so sorry, she said. The woman nodded. Thank you. Do you know where she got the necklace? Who might have wanted to harm her? It was a tribute from my supplicant, in thanks for a prophecy fulfilled. Do you know this supplicant's name? Asante asked. The woman in white turned and looked Asante in the eye for the first time since the Pythia had fallen. It does not matter. The assassin's aims have been achieved. Then, you and your friend should go. Miss Brooks is a trained investigator. We can help you. Now. As she spoke, a peal of thunder echoed across the clear sky. Clouds soon followed, accompanied by a distant pounding noise. Rain or footsteps? Many, many footsteps. Footsteps. Surely you don't think we are responsible, said Asante. It does not matter, the woman in white repeated. "The Pythia is gone. We must mourn and bury her, and then find and anoint her successor. You are no longer welcome here, but we need to know what you need is no longer relevant. Return to the fountain house. It would bring you back to your own place and time. Go. The thunder cracked again, and the stone floors shook beneath their feet. Asanti turned to the others. I think we should listen to her. Asante thought she heard Liam mutter, finally. Together, they ran. The Fountain House in Delphi of the World What happened back there? Grace asked, as soon as they were once again in the dappled world of modern Delphi and had enough breath for asking questions. Besides someone killing the Pythia, asked Liam. Grace leveled her best do-not-mess-with-me stare. Allow me to rephrase. How did that happen back there? Menchu shook his head. Aside from ourselves, the only person present at her death was the woman in white, and I know none of us, killed Epithia. Verbal trigger, said Asante. Liam blinked. Excuse me? It strangled her, cutting off her voice as she was about to tell us where we could find the codex. That can't be a coincidence. Whoever gave her that necklace, and by whoever, you mean Norse, said Sal. Whoever gave her that necklace clearly meant it as a trap. She starts divulging information they don't want to get out. No more Pythia. The Pythia will be replaced, said Grace, and she won't be stupid enough to wear the necklace that killed her predecessor. Maybe that doesn't matter, said Sal. I'm guessing that anointing a new Pythia is a quick process. Most likely it'll be weeks before they reopen the shrine. Norse left us alone for nearly a month after the Market Arcanum, and now suddenly we can't go 20 minutes without the orb triggering. Norse is on a timetable, and my bet is that by the time we can ask the new oracle where to find the Codex, he'll already have his hands on his very own Norton Anthology of Evil, said Sal. Three pairs of eyes blinked at her in silence. If any of you had gone to an American high school, that would have been a very clever reference, said Sal. Liam crossed his arms. We know what a Norton Anthology is he said. Norton is a British publisher, but unless your American high school taught you where to find evil books sought by madmen, we're back where we started. Only lighter by five sacrifices and heavier by one dead Pythia. He glared at Minshew. So glad using magic was worth it. Sal couldn't believe that Liam had basically told his boss, a priest, no less. I told you so. On the other hand, Liam wasn't wrong. Actually, said Asante, we aren't exactly back to square one. How so? asked Manchu. At the library of Alexandria, Yusef told us about the nature of magic, the special rules of cause and effect that apply. And before she died, the Pythia showed us how to access the power of the Castalian Spring. Liam stared at Asante, mouth agape. No, he turned to Manchu. She can't. You can't let her. Technically, she outranks me, Manchu pointed out. I don't care, said Liam. You don't even know what I'm suggesting said Asante. You're suggesting that we try to channel the magic of the spring ourselves, and I'm saying that it's a terrible idea. I'm inclined to agree, said Menchu. To everyone's surprise, Grace spoke up. We should do it. What? If we do nothing, Norse gets the book. We don't know what his aims are, but he still wanted the last book after he knew that it was leaking demon ooze. If we let Asante try to use the spring, it might go horribly wrong. She might die. We might all die. But if it doesn't, The rest of the world will have a fighting chance. Liam shook his head. There has to be another way. How long will it take you to prepare? Menchu asked Asante. And I mean properly prepare, taking every precaution. Asante considered. Two hours. Menchu turned to Liam. If you can use what we've learned so far to find a solid lead on the location of the Codex Umbra in three hours, we'll follow it. Otherwise, I'm going to let her try. Grace Salah help with whatever either one of them needs in the meantime. And with that, Manchu began picking his way down the path. What are you going to do? Sal called after him. Manchu didn't look back. Pray. Since all Liam needed was the fastest internet connection available in Delphi, surprisingly fast for a place that was so hard to get to, but Liam just muttered something about tourist traps and credit card processing and buried himself in his computer. Sal and Grace got a list of supplies from Asante and then left her to meditate and cleanse herself pre-ritual while they went into town. Having learned that Grace wasn't one for idle banter, Sal was prepared to spend the walk in companionable silence. Grace had other ideas, however. What's Liam so pissed about? She asked. Sal's step hitched, and she hoped Grace hadn't noticed. He was once possessed by a demon, and now he's touchy about even brushing up against magic? That's been his problem for years. This is new what makes you think I'd know? You want me to open up to you? That goes both ways. If we're going to be friends now, then we're going to be friends. So? Sure. Liam has a problem with you. Is it because you're sleeping together? Sal nearly choked on her own spit. I thought we were being discreet. Grace gave her a look. My life is made up of patches of coherence surrounded by long stretches of unconsciousness. People don't always think to summarize what I've missed. I've learned to observe details and get up to speed quickly. Oh, one reason I don't tell people about my condition, by the way, is that when I do, they tend to give me looks like that. Sorry, Sal said. I just, sorry. What happened? Well, mostly, we aren't sleeping together anymore. This time, it was Grace's turn to say, oh. And a hesitation later, sorry. They walked together for a few more minutes until Sal realized that Grace was content to leave the topic there. And it wasn't that she had been looking forward to the third degree, but... So you're not going to give me the don't shit where you eat speech? Sal asked. Grace raised an eyebrow. Was your relationship the equivalent of a pile of dung in the dining room? Well, no. Was he trying to hurt you? No. Did you enter the relationship wanting to hurt him? Of course not. Grace shrugged. Then, if you loved him, why shouldn't you have pursued it? Sal wasn't sure love was exactly the right word for what had been between the two of them, but maybe it wasn't exactly the wrong word either. But isn't it messing up teen dynamics now or something? Grace shrugged. If this didn't, something else would have. I've been around a while, trust me. They had reached the town's main street, and Sal was left to consider Grace's words as they set about finding the items on Asante's wish list. A lighter cigarettes, a wooden bowl, and a large box of salt. That last item made Sal think of the fair weather and Katie, and she boggled at how many things had followed from a collapsed bookshop. As they started back up the path toward the spring, Sal returned to their earlier topic of conversation. What you were saying before about Liam and me and pursuing chances? Grace nodded. If we're friends now, were you speaking from personal experience? Wind rustled dry grass. They walked for a long time in silence. Then Grace spoke. When I met Arturo Manchu, I had been alive for more than 60 years, and we looked like we were the same age. He worries about my candle. I've been watching his burn down for 30 years. A secluded clearing next to the Castalian stream three hours later Asante knew that Liam, and even Menchu, thought she was too cavalier about magic. But lack of care for the dangers magic presented wasn't the reason why she consistently pushed for the society to take a less abolitionist stance against the rising tide of the supernatural into the world. If the theories of the society were right, and every part of her research and that of her predecessors indicated that they were, the question wasn't if magic would break through into the world, but when. The time to learn how to harness, control, and manipulate those forces was now, not when they were all awash in the flood. The Mr. Norses of the world would be ready. The society had to be as well. Which was why Asante had been studying the manipulation of magic and demons for most of her professional life. Still, even as she laid out her preparations, she searched her mind for an alternative to putting her theoretical studies into practice. If Liam came up with the lead, she would yield to him in a heartbeat. In the end, she was glad that Menchu had allotted her three hours instead of the two she had requested. Magic was a lot like cooking. The mise en place always took longer than you expected. She was finishing when she heard Menchu's footsteps approaching through the woods, alone. Are you sure about this? He asked. Asante shook her head. Of course, I'm not sure. But unless Liam found something, I think we should try. We don't have to. When the consequences of inaction outweigh the risks of action, the only possible course is to act. Mandela? Manchu gasped. My mother. One asked why she gave up a comfortable life as an expatriate to return home and fight for an end to colonial rule. I've taken every precaution I know. This is as safe as I can make it. And if those precautions aren't enough? Asante raised an eyebrow. Does i have her gun with her? She's not cleared to carry in EU countries. Then tell Grace to snap my neck quickly. If a demon tries to use me as a beachhead, killing me should send it back where it came from, as surely as closing a book. Manchu gave her a solemn nod. I'll get the others. And with that, the time for doubts was over. Soon the rest of the team stood in a circle around her, one at each of the four compass points, centering them in a geographical system of mapping the world correspondence, the map and the territory, the idea of the thing and where it could be found, a circle to create a border, magic within, mundane without. Making the circle out of salt wasn't necessary, but it had historical precedent. Also, it was the substance that bound earth and sea. Air was present in abundance. For fire, Asante lit a cigarette from the pack Grace and Sal had bought and left it on a flat rock to smolder. Finally, Asanti ordered her thoughts. She called to mind everything they knew about the Codex Umbra. It wasn't much, but she made the most complete mental picture she could, turning it over and over in her head. Finally, she dipped her hands into the stream, brought the cool water to her lips, and drank. As soon as Asanti drank the water from the spring, Sal felt a charge hit the air. So the space was suddenly filled with something weightless and invisible, but that gave the atmosphere a substance that it hadn't had before, like the feeling of a summer afternoon before a thunderstorm. Then uh, Asante spoke The Codex, Umbra. What you see cannot be found, although you can reach its hiding place. Go to where dawn first lights this land, where a titan once stood watch. The Codex lives in shadow. To protect the world, the Wounded Knights locked his prison, which can only be opened on the lightest of days. Asante fell silent, blinked. I think that's it. Sal caught Liam's eye from where he stood around the circle to her left. He looked relieved, but quickly masked his expression when he saw her watching. I suppose coordinates would have been too much to ask for, he grumbled. Sal couldn't stop the smile twisting at her lips. He smiled back. Maybe we'll be okay after all, she thought. Inside the circle, Asante reached forward to stub out the cigarette, but as her fingers closed around the filter, the smoldering end flared into a jet of flame. Asanti shouted Menchu. Her eyes gone completely white, Asanti didn't answer. She's gonna set the trees on fire, said Grace, her tone as calm as if she was commenting on the weather. Sal looked at the stream, at least there was a source of water. She turned for her gear, looking for something she could use as a bucket. That movement saved her life. An instant after she turned away from Asante, a blast of heat impacted Sal's left shoulder, and she smelled her hair begin to burn. Five. Still by the stream, three seconds later asante wasn't responding liam stood transfixed sal was on fire grace leapt into action she had her complaints about what her encounter with a crazed magician in shanghai had done to her life tying her existence and consciousness to a magic infused candle but having a body essentially impervious to physical harm was not one of them she barreled straight into sal tangent to the circle sending the other woman stumbling towards the stream then dug in her heels, planting herself right in the center of the flame, a tranced-out Asante was launching from her cigarette. At least, that was the plan. Grace felt the wash of fire distantly as a pleasant warmth that told her the flames were there, even if they weren't doing her any harm. And then, the heat was gone. Asante, or whatever was controlling Asante, wasn't mindlessly attacking. It had shifted its aim, pursuing Sal. That's not good. Liam froze. If anyone should have been prepared for disaster, you should have been, he reproached himself. And yet, when his worst fear came to life, when he saw the humanity in Asante overwhelmed by the sheer power she had tried to bend to her will, he froze. He wanted to run to Sal, stop this disaster before it could spread. But he stood rooted to the spot, heart pounding in his ears. He didn't know what he had done or where he had been during his missing years. But that feeling in the air, the smell of fire that was different from any fire on earth, He could not remember having seen or felt or smelled those things before, but they were familiar nonetheless, and that terrified him to his core. He closed his eyes. You're clean. The church says so. The society says so. Manchu says so. This isn't you. You're clean. Liam. Manchu's voice jolted Liam out of his reverie. Get in here and help me with her. Manchu had stepped into the circle with Asante, trying to wrest control of the cigarette with one hand while wielding a bottle of holy water in the other. Manchu's voice cracked against Liam's hesitation. Now, Liam jerked into action. One foot in front of the other, and in two strides, he was next to Asante. Years ago, she had helped him find his way back to himself. Now was his chance to help her do the same. He pulled her body against his, her back to his front, so that he could use his right hand to grip her right wrist, pushing it, forcing the flaming cigarette down. Farther, farther, until he jammed the tip against a large, flat rock. The flames sputtered and died. The dry leaves next to the rock began throwing off smoke, and he moved to stomp them with his boot. Let Grace handle that. Menchu again. Hold the Santi still. Exorcisms were not designed to be conducted in the middle of the woods, only a few hundred yards from a notable tourist site and without weeks of extensive preparation. Good thing Menchu wasn't planning an exorcism. He was, however, praying for divine assistance. Oh, Lord, from the beginning, your act of creation was rooted in separation, light from darkness, heaven from earth, the waters above from the waters below. Help us now. Separate your earthly daughter from the foreign force that seeks to use her to breach this world, as the root does the wall that upholds the foundations of your church and your creation. We ask this in your name. Amen. He distantly heard Liam echo his amen under Asante's wordless scream. Hold on, friend, said Menchu, and he tipped the vial of holy water in his hand into Asante's mouth. She sputtered, choked. For a second of heart stopping terror, Menchu feared he was about to see Asanti die like the Pythia. But then Liam was bending Asanti forward and she was heating up a stream of clear water from her throat, much more than the vial of holy water had contained. And not a trace of food or bile. It's from the spring, said Liam. As the last drops hit the dry earth, the heaviness in the air lifted. Are you all right? Menchu asked Asanti. She nodded. Her eyes met his her eyes that were once again a familiar dark brown. She cleared her throat. Thanks for finding a way to do that without killing me. Anytime. Cautiously, Liam let her go. Do you remember what you said? Asked Menchu. Yes, uh, sorry to be so cryptic. Her eye fell on a very damp but no longer burning, Sal. And about that. That wasn't you, said Sal. And as for the cryptic, Liam added, I've got some ideas. Menchu looked at his team, the cop, the haunted programmer, the indestructible woman out of her time who would probably outlive them all, the archivist who held them all together. Come on, he said. Let's go home. Epilogue. The Black Archives, a.k.a. Home. 16 hours later. Rhodes. Liam looked up from his computer. The Codex Umbra is at Rhodes. You're sure? Asked Menchu. Liam nodded. Farthest east of the major Greek islands, that's where dawn first hits this land of Delphi, Also formerly home of a colossus that was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Where a titan once stood watch, quoted Asante. That still leaves us a lot of ground to cover, said Sal. Well, maybe not in absolute terms, but I'm guessing a major Greek island has more than one place to hide an evil book. Well, mused Manchu, if the book is at Rhodes, the Wounded Knights must be the Knights of St. John. Checking their records might give us a place to start looking. And the brightest of all days? Asked Sal. The summer solstice, said Grace. Which is fourteen days from now, said Liam. So, said Manchu, that leaves us two weeks to discover the secret vault of the Knights of St. John and come up with a means of keeping the Codex away from Mr. Norse. Liam looked over at Asante. It's still more information than we used to have. Asante nodded, accepting the implied apology. I have some books that might be useful. Manchu looked at the team. They'd been running ragged for nearly a month. At the moment, they were feeling the surge of energy that came with new discovery, but he knew from experience that it wouldn't last. First, he said, everyone go home, eat real food, get real sleep. And if I see any of you in here before noon tomorrow, I'm going to force you to take two days off. Sal grinned. Menchu didn't. Ask the others if you think I'm kidding. For a bunch of dedicated workaholics, it was an effective threat. While Menchu didn't threaten frequently, he kept that one in his arsenal for emergencies. Sal's expression sobered. It was a sign of how exhausted they all were that no one actually fought his suggestion. Even Asante didn't seem inclined to linger. And then... Menchu and Grace were alone in the archives. I hope that noon rule applies to you as well, said Grace. Menchu chuckled. Yes, ma'am. She poked him with her elbow. Anything else, he asked. Actually, yes. Name it. I need a break. We've been running from crisis to crisis too long. I'm rested, but I'm not getting any mental downtime. Menchu nodded, catching her meaning. Are you sure? Grace nodded. I want my day off, and this seems like a good time for it. She looked to him, suddenly seeming unsure. I can take noon to noon, though, if you want to sleep in. No, I can wake up. I know how much you like your mornings. Grace smiled. After all these years, and she still loved the way it lit her face. See you in the morning, then, she said. He watched her go. As the door closed behind her, he said, See you in the morning. You are listening to Book Burners. Created
0: and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hi, listeners. This is Mary from the Realm team. We brought you the show you've been listening to right now and wanted to tell you about another show we think is right up your alley. But rather than me tell you about it, I'm going to let Mackenzie tell you herself. Welcome to Dead Air. In the weeks to come, I'll be telling you all about the sordid tale of the murder of Margaret Heather Graham, known as Peg to her friends, and the bizarre twists and turns that led to the killer's confession. Yes, at least you don't have to worry about him showing up at your doorstep. He's in prison. Hello, this is McKenzie. You have it wrong. What if the person who killed Peg Graham isn't in prison? Excuse me? The murder pig Graham. Everyone thinks they know what happened, but it doesn't add up. There's more to it. You should look deeper. Listen and subscribe to Dead Air wherever you get your podcasts. BookBurners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Xe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahy. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at Realm.fm.